This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. I want to read from Hebrews 11, verse 4 there on the inside. Hebrews 11 and verse 4. The Bible says that by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. That's an interesting statement. Abel being dead speaks to us. How does he speak? Well, he speaks through his actions, doesn't he? What he did here on earth. And as we look at Abel's speech, he tells us the importance of worshiping God acceptably. He brought to God there an offering of the fruit of the ground, or of, uh, excuse me, of the firstling of his flock and the fat thereof. And Ab or Cain brought the fruit of the ground, something he had grown that God had not wanted. And Abel gave God exactly what he wanted. And he teaches us, still speaks to the fact that it makes a difference how we worship God. It makes a difference what we offer God. And of course, Abel lost his life over this. His own brother killed him. And Abel was the first on earth to die. And yet he still speaks. The very first human being to ever taste of death is the one that still talks to us even though dead. And we learn lessons off Abel. And uh, you will remember many times when we've referred to Abel and used him to teach us various things. But there's another story that Jesus talked about. There's a dead man in it that also speaks to us. Actually two dead men and they teach us many lessons. And that's what I want to look at today. And that story is in Luke 16, if you'll turn there, Luke 16, and let's read verse 19 through 31. <clears throat> Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. Jesus said there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked their sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, or Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Here's a story that uh, we're very familiar with. We've studied it many times. And... Some of these old stories, you just keep digging in them and new truths come to the surface. It's kind of like finding gold, I suppose. You still find nuggets. They're still valuable to mine. They're still good information. 
And this is a story of tragedy and a story of salvation, a story of two men that lived here on earth, one that was a poor beggar who was diseased and helpless and afflicted, and yet in spite of that condition showed that he served God faithfully and that that could be done regardless of our situation in life. We can be diseased, we can have poverty, we can be even reduced to being a beggar, and yet we can still serve God. It never gets too bad for us to serve God in this life, and that's what he demonstrates. And, and that beggar still speaks that lesson to us clearly, as, as, as well as many other things. And then we have, on the other hand, a rich man who had it very easy. Every day wealth rolled into him. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. He had the best clothing. His table was just just full of abundance of things to eat. And he had income, you know, rolling in. Everything looked really good, and yet with all of that great blessing from God, he didn't serve God. And he didn't care about this poor beggar at his gate. No record that he ever helped him. And then the two men die, and what they experience after death is told in this story by Jesus. And a conversation that the rich man had with Abraham is revealed to us. And this man still speaks to us today, and there are great lessons taught in this story. One of the things that comes out of this story is this. This story refutes many false doctrines that are in the world today. There are a lot of false doctrines in the world. And this story refutes probably a whole lot more of them than what I've got time to cover this morning. Nonetheless, I want to look at several things that this man speaks to, lessons we can learn from a tormented man in this story. We have in the world today the doctrine of what's called universal salvation. There are those that teach this, we wonder how, but they teach that every person is ultimately going to be saved eternally. Universal salvation. No one, in other words, will be lost. And this story just absolutely destroys that, that idea and that doctrine. Because we've got a man here in this story that's saved while another man is lost. And we've got a beggar that was comforted after death, and we've got a rich man that was tormented after death. And what happened to them is completely different. And it just completely destroys the idea of universalism. Jesus taught when he was here among us that only a few people will be saved, just a few. I wonder if we think about the the masses of humanity now on earth, we're told we've got a what, seven, maybe seven and a half billion? That's a lot of people on earth. If the Lord came today, how many do you think might be saved? You know, maybe a few million? That would be hardly nothing compared to seven and a half billion. Remember, a billion is 1,000 million, and there's seven and a half of those on the earth at least plus all of the human beings that have ever lived. Jesus said in Matthew 7, if you're reading there with me, verse 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Does that sound like universal salvation? Few there be that find it. Then in verse 21 of Matthew 7, the Lord tells why only a few people will be saved. And I'd like for us to think about us as we read this scripture. 
Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. How many people today do the will of the Father? Not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, many, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These are religious people. And on the day of judgment, Jesus said, Many are going to say this to me. Not a few. Remember, it's few that be that find it. But many will say to me in that day, Lord, we prophesied in your name. In your name, we've cast out devils. In your name, we've done many wonderful works. And Jesus will say to these people, I never knew you. You never were mine. I don't even recognize you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's hardly universal salvation, is it? And the rich man and what he experienced after death shows us that this, this doctrine is completely false. There are lessons that we can learn from this tormented man. Secondly, there is the doctrine of materialism. And it's refuted by this rich man and by this story. And that is that man ceases to exist after death. We have those today who believe, and there are a lot of them, who believe that when we die, we just decompose and there's nothing left of us. Nothing, in other words, lives on because it's held by a lot of people that we are just flesh. That's all we are. We are just a physical body. And when that body dies, we just don't have existence. And I suppose they're looking at some of the creation accounts. In Genesis 2 and 7, the Bible speaks to the origin of man, of Adam. The Bible says that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul or a living person. So he makes man from the dust of the ground and we know that when a person dies their body returns to dust. Then down in verse 21 of Genesis 2 he speaks to the creation of the woman. The Bible says the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh." So he talks about a woman being made out of the bone of man, out of a rib bone that God took from Adam's side. You've got man made out of dirt. You've got a woman made out of a bone from the man. And of course people then have the idea that when we die, well that's, that's all there is to us. We're just a physical being. But they forget the fact that God's breathed into us there the breath of life that we are created in the image of God. God is not flesh, God is a spirit, the Bible says in John 4 and 24. And so we have a different nature. In fact, all of us have a threefold nature that I want to look at for just a moment. We are a threefold being. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, read that with me. Paul said, The very God of peace sanctify you holy, and I pray God that your whole spirit and soul 
and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord Jesus. So he prayed their whole spirit, soul, and body. We are a composite. We are a trinity, if you will. We are composed of three different parts. And when death comes, and all death means is separation. When death comes, these three things separate. And they each go to different places. Contrary to the materialistic view, we are not just a physical body, but we have a spirit and a soul also. That's part of our nature. So usually we bury the body. Now what happens to our spirit when we die? Well, it doesn't cease to exist. Although the body's going to return to dust, the spirit's going to live on, and it actually goes back to God the Father. Let's read some scripture. Ecclesiastes 12 and 7, these are in your, your list of scriptures there showing the spirit returns to God. And that's whether we're wicked or righteous. Our spirit's going back to God. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit unto God who gave it. So when you die, your spirit's going to go back to God. And if you're a saint or a sinner, it's still going to go back to God. We read in um, Luke chapter 23 and verse 46 there of Jesus, we read about His death. And the Bible says of Christ that when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commend My spirit. And having said thus, He gave up the ghost. So Jesus commended His spirit to God there at the cross, didn't He? When Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, verse 59, the Bible says they stoned Stephen, calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So when we die then, as Ecclesiastes teaches, it returns to God. You see, that's, that refutes materialism. And then what about the soul? Well, it goes to a place that we read about in this story called Hades. Hades. It's translated hell in the King James, but it's Hades in Greek. And uh, this is, of course, where the rich man and, and the beggar themselves went. They went to this place that, if you'll notice the diagram there in the middle of your chart, Hades has a section of comfort, has a section of torment separated from each other by a great gulf. And when you and I here on earth leave this earth by reason of death, our soul is taken to one of these two places in Hades. Jesus went to Hades when He died. How do we know that? The Bible says He did. Let's look at Acts 2, verse 29 through 32 right quick. <laughs> Acts 2 and verse 29. Peter on the day of Pentecost said to the Jews, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. There's another burial. He is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that according to, his according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, or the fruit of his loins according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption, this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we're all witnesses. Our Lord's soul was not left in Hades. His flesh, or His body, did not see corruption. Because David predicted that both of these would be resurrected. On that third day, the soul of Jesus entered into the body. Of course, the Spirit would have come. And the resurrection occurred. But Jesus never ceased to exist. 
His spirit he commended to God, and his soul went to Hades, and his body lay in a tomb for three days. In regard to the beggar in this story, and in regard to the rich man, their spirit would have gone back to God, their souls would have gone to Hades. We don't know about the body of the beggar, but we know the body of the rich man there again was buried, Luke 16. The rich man died and was buried, see. So we know what happened to that body, but his soul and spirit lived on. And so this story absolutely refutes the idea that you and I cease to exist when we die. It refutes materialism. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups teach that when you die, you're just like Rover, you're dead all over. Because they don't believe you have a soul inside your body. They do not believe that. They believe you are a soul, that you don't have a soul, you are a soul. And every place they find the word soul, they make it the person, the whole person, not the inner man. But of course the Bible speaks often about the soul, and in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we read about our spirit, soul, and body being preserved blameless to the coming of the Lord Jesus. They're different things. Number three, the doctrine of a second chance is refuted by this story, by this tormented man. This rich man wanted to be saved. And there are a lot of people that say, well, we're going to get a second chance at salvation. Premillennialism has that option in it for those that are alive when Christ comes, uh, those that live on during the tribulation. Jesus comes supposedly in a rapture and raptures the church off the earth, and then those that are still left on the earth are offered another chance at salvation, see, during this supposed seven-year tribulation. It's a it's a complicated theory, and I won't get into it this morning. But there are a lot of people that believe in a second chance. This story teaches no second chance. And the, the rich man would have loved to have had a second chance. In fact, he pleaded with Abraham for mercy. People that die, I'm sure, do that. They want help. They want relief right there. There is no relief. He had waited too long because we have death and then judgment follows. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, and as it is appointed unto men wants to die, but after this the judgment. And so there is no, there is no second chance in between for that. In 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, the Bible says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is all we have. And there is no opportunity after death for you and I to be saved. Let's be thinking about that. What would have happened if you died yesterday and you weren't ready? There wouldn't have been another opportunity. That would have been it. So we need to be thinking about things like that. Number four, the doctrine of spiritualism is refuted. We have people today who believe they can communicate with dead people. And uh, they may have talked to Aunt Bertha or Uncle William or somebody like that. They'll, they'll tell us all about it. I can assure you they are not commuting. They're not uh, communicating with anybody in the family or any known or unknown, uh, anyone else on earth. We don't communicate with the dead, and there is no such doctrine as this. When you go to these supposed uh, spiritualists that can supposedly conjure up people and talk to spirits and things like this, uh, that maybe have their crystal ball and such things. This is just nonsense. None of this stuff happens. But there are people who believe in that. You know, the beggar, uh, 
the beggar was begged by the rich man actually to be sent back to earth. The rich man had five brothers back at his father's house. They weren't ready to die. They weren't ready to come to where he was. And so he wanted this beggar sent back to the earth to talk to them. He wanted someone from the dead. In fact, he urged that on Abraham. He said, Father Abraham, if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. See, that was his message to Abraham. And Abraham tells him, no, they've got Moses and the prophets. You know, they can hear them. God doesn't send dead people to communicate with us. There's no such doctrine. All of our communication in being saved comes from fellow human beings. Mark 16, verse 15, 16. <clears throat> he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Preaching's done by men. The message that'll save you and I has got to be delivered by our fellow human beings here on earth. Not, not even angels can do that. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, Paul likened the gospel here to a treasure. And he said this about this treasure. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God, not of us. This gospel's been given to men to preach, not angels, not spirits of those that have departed, not the dead. But it's been given to people here like you and me that are just weak, frail human beings. Not even angels are charged with preaching the gospel. Remember in Acts 8 and verse 26 when Philip was at Samaria and having great success, there was an Ethiopian man that was going to be traveling the road between Jerusalem and Gaza. And God wanted this man saved. And so an angel was sent to, to the evangelist Philip when he was up in Samaria. The angel said, Arise, Acts 8, 26, Go toward the south, under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. Now why didn't this angel fly down to that road? He could have flown down there very quickly and go take the gospel himself to the man to be converted. Why trouble Philip? He's up in Samaria and he's preaching in that city and he's having great success. Men and women are being baptized. The church is being firmly established. And now the angel tells this preacher, Arise, go toward the south under the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert or deserted. Sends him down to a lonely road where there's no population to talk to one guy. And you've got to ask yourself, well, why didn't the angel just go do that? Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're not preached to by the dead. We don't communicate with the dead. We don't communicate with angels. We don't speak to those in the spirit world. God has designed salvation to be delivered by those that are in a fleshly body like ours. Weak, frail human beings. And this idea of spiritualism is just refuted by this story. Number five, the doctrine of the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of that doctrine. I think we've talked about it. Uh, direct operation of the Spirit. There are people today who believe when the Holy Spirit sets out to save people that He can go to them in person and enter into them quietly, mysteriously. And just enter into them and work in their heart and turn them to God and in that way convert them. 
It's called a direct operation. I grew up hearing that kind of preaching. When I was a boy, the, the denominational church I attended, we had preachers that would get up. Many times they'd talk for an hour, wouldn't say anything. They preached hardly any Bible. <clears throat> they told funny stories and personal experiences and, and emotional things to try to get you worked up emotionally. Then they passed the collection plate when they did. It was just a service of sure emotion and just fluff, no substance to it. And folks, when I was 20, 21 years old, I'd sat in church all my life and I knew nothing about the Bible because I never heard the Bible. We never read Scripture like you and I are reading this morning. We didn't hear that kind of teaching. There was very little Bible ever used. But when this preacher would get through speaking, they would pray for the Holy Spirit to come down. And if there were any sinners there in the audience, they would pray for Him to enter into that sinner and work silently in their heart and bring about a change and bring salvation to them. It was a direct operation of the Spirit. What they didn't understand is the Spirit operates in the conversion of a sinner all right, but He doesn't operate directly. <clears throat> he does not operate separate and apart from the Word of God. In fact, the Word is what the Spirit uses as His instrument to bring about the conversion of a person. That's why we're told to go preach the gospel to every creature. See? That's the Spirit working when we preach. When we preach that Word, the Holy Spirit's at work because He's the author of that Word. See? And it's no less the Spirit doing it. If a, if a carpenter builds a house, what does he use? Tools and instruments of all kinds, hammers and saws and drills and all kinds of things. It's still the carpenter doing the building. He's just got instruments. When a doctor operates on a person, when a surgeon is involved in, in surgery, he's using a scaffold and instruments like this to make the operation. It's still the doctor doing the operating. He's just using an instrument. If a plumber's fixing a pipe in your house, he may have a wrench. It's still the plumber doing the repairs. He's just got an instrument, a tool. It's still the Holy Spirit bringing about conversion. He's just got an instrument he uses, and that's called the Word of God. And we have those today that say, well, no, he, <coughs> he operates separate and apart from this Word. He does not. Let's read some scripture about this, because this story refutes that. You see, when this, when this rich man wanted his five brothers saved at his father's house, if there's such a thing as the direct operation of the Holy Spirit, he wouldn't have had to ask for the beggar to be sent to his five brothers, would he? The Holy Spirit could have just gone directly and entered into his five brothers and brought about their conversion, see. But of course, Abraham tells him they have Moses and the prophets. You see, there were words. There were words in that law. There were words in the prophets. And that was the Holy Spirit's words. And they would bring about the salvation of all five of these brothers if they would just go to Moses and the prophets, see. Let's notice some scripture about the Word and how the Spirit uses it, because God's designed to save us by this Word. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, Paul said, For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. What the world calls foolishness, preaching, is what saves us. James 1 and 21, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness 
and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. There it is again. That word's able to save us. See? And so that's, that word is called the sword for the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 17, Paul said, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the Spirit's instrument. Again, we read there in Hebrews 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is quick, that means living. The Word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. This word is powerful, it is living. It's not a dead letter. I was preaching uh, years ago, this was at a, it was a Memorial Day service at a, an old country church building with a cemetery nearby. And every year on Memorial Day, this, this old uh, church building, th those that attended there and, and took care of the cemetery, had a special service, and uh, they called in preachers from different churches to make short talks, and they had some singing and just kind of a memorial service. And uh, I was asked to represent the Churches of Christ, so I went over there to that cemetery that Sunday afternoon. It was up on a mountain called Bohannon Mountain out near Huntsville, and uh, there were several other preachers that were there representing denominations of various kinds. I remember one fellow in front of me got up and <clears throat> he held up the Bible and he said, friends, this is a dead letter. This is just a dead letter. Nothing to it. And he threw his Bible down there and he said, I'm just going to speak today what the Holy Spirit lays on my heart. In other words, a direct operation of the Spirit. The Spirit's going to tell me what to say to you today, and I'm going to teach you. This is just a dead letter, he said, and I don't need it. So he just laid his Bible down, and I wish you could have heard what the Holy Spirit supposedly taught him that day. But he had no message. It was just a, it was just a gob of words that were disconnected. The message made no sense. The audience got nothing out of it. None of us did. Because the man wouldn't be led, would, wasn't being led by the Holy Spirit. If he were going to be led by the Spirit, he could have followed the words of the Spirit, see. Here was his message. He had a Bible full of it. But he chose to pretend that the Holy Spirit was guiding him directly apart from this Word, see. And he just made a mess. Actually, what he said made me mad when he called the Bible a dead letter. So I got up for my part on the floor. Now, I had... I knew it was a memorial service, and there was a cemetery nearby, and of course Jesus had risen from the dead and has conquered death, and I thought, well, that would be a good message today, is talk about some evidence for Christ's resurrection and why His resurrection is our hope. So I had prepared a message from the Holy Spirit out of the, out of the Bible. When I got up, I said, uh, you know, the, Jesus said of this word, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life, John 6, 63. And he said the word of God is quick or living and powerful. And Peter says we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. This is a living word. So I'm just going to speak today what the Holy Spirit lays on my heart in these scriptures. <laughs> and I wanted the guy to hear that. He needed to hear that message. And since I'd prepared a message on the resurrection, 
and given evidence of Christ rising from the dead. That's what I preached that day. And people were excited. They, they were, they were uh, built up in faith and encouraged and strengthened by the Lord's resurrection because the Holy Spirit gave us that message. See, That's the Spirit operating right there, but He does it through the Word. See, And that's what I wanted to demonstrate that day. Even when we're born again, it's brought about by the Spirit. Let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15. Paul told the Corinthians, Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So when Paul begat the Corinthians, he did it through the gospel. That's the Spirit doing that. We're begotten of the Holy Spirit. But what does the Spirit use? The gospel. See, It's not a direct operation of the Holy Spirit, but it is the Holy Spirit. And when this word is used, we can be begotten by the gospel, begotten by the Spirit. See, James 1.18, Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. 1 Peter 1, verse 22-23, Peter said, Seeing you purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, notice that, in obeying the truth through the Spirit, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another, with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So that's the Holy Spirit, and we're not trying to discredit the Spirit this morning. In fact, we give the Spirit credit when we talk about the Word, because that was revealed by the Holy Spirit. And when He brings about our salvation, He does it by means of the Word. How does He do that? He tells you about Jesus. When you preach the gospel, you tell people the good news, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He, that he was sinless, that He took our sins, that he, he paid the debt that we owed there on the cross by shedding His blood, that He was buried, that He rose the third day. That's good news. And that's given by the Holy Spirit. And when people receive that word, it produces faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Faith doesn't come by direct operation of the Spirit. It comes by hearing the Word of God. Repentance is brought about by this Word, by the Holy Spirit using this Word. Because in the Word He gives motives. He talks about God's goodness. That's designed to lead us to repentance. He reminds us how good God is to us. He warns us of judgment if we fail to obey God. That brings about repentance. That produces godly sorrow, which works repentance. All of this is brought about by the Word of God. See? but it's the Holy Spirit doing it. So the idea of the direct operation of the Spirit is just refuted by the details of this story. After all, if the Holy Spirit is going to operate apart from this Word, then why tell, why tell the, the rich man that his brothers have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them, see? Number six, the doctrine of the elect and non-elect is also refuted by this story because there are people today who believes that, believe that God, uh, God has determined before the foundation of the world who would be saved and who won't be. That He's already made that decision. And you're either one of His elect that will be saved and given everlasting life or you're not possibly going to be saved because you're one of the non-elect and He's already decided you're going to hell. 
And there are people that believe God has already made this decision. It's called election, predestination. And this story refutes that. Because remember the, the rich man is told by Abraham, your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See, if they would listen to Moses and the prophets, because that had provided the instruction that saved this beggar, if they would just listen to Moses and the prophets, they could be saved. And that, that makes God fair, because God sends this word to every preacher, every person. And then they can make their own decision as to whether or not they obey it. It's not left up to God. If it's election, if it's predestination, God's made that determination, and you and I have nothing to do with it. But if it's left up to us hearing God's Word and obeying it, then of course that makes God fair, and, and God, God wants everybody saved. Notice some scripture with me. First, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 6. There on the back. Paul said, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, listen, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So God would have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. Again in Luke, or Acts 10, verse 34 and 35, there at the house of Cornelius, Peter said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So God's not a respecter of persons. If he chooses to save David and send me to hell, that makes God a respecter of persons because he's chosen David over me, hasn't he? And that's not fair on God's part, and God's not that way. So God sends me and David both the Word, and then we have our choice as to whether or not we believe and obey it. And God wants us both to obey, and that makes God fair in every sense. See? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Or let, me, let me first catch Hebrews 2 and 9. The Bible says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste of death for every man, every person Jesus died for. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not God's will for anybody to be lost. And if this idea of election and such things is true, then people are telling us God's already made that decision. But God's fair. And He told the rich man through Abraham, Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See. Number seven, the doctrine of purgatory is refuted by this story. And that's the idea that men can can get out of torment after death. Remember, it's taught by a lot of people that when you die, your soul goes into torment like we have here on the chart. And uh, But you can give so much money to a priest or a man of God and he can pray and get you out of this torment and get you over here in comfort. But you see, this story right here refutes that idea and the experience of the rich man certainly refutes it. 
because Abraham couldn't help this rich man. Remember, he begged for just a little bit of water to be brought to him and put on, the, put on his tongue, just the tip of, tip of the finger in water. He said, cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. And Abraham tells you, we can't do that. We can't come to you. Because between you and us, there's a gulf that's fixed. It separates us. And this gulf can't be crossed. So Abraham couldn't help him. Luke 16, 26, beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. He said this can't be crossed. And so after death, one man's in comfort, one's in torment. Verse 25 of Luke 16. He said, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And that can't be changed. And so, this idea of getting out of purgatory is just completely false. Finally, the doctrine of a prosperity gospel. Boy, do we have that preached today. You turn the television on, what's the message? Serve God and you'll never have any problems. Serve God and He'll heal your finances. Serve God and you'll never be sick. You'll have good health because God wants you wealthy and God wants you healthy. And when you turn on guys like Joel Oldstein, and people like this, that's their message. They preach what's called a prosperity gospel, that if you're one of God's children, then He wills for you to prosper and you're not going to know difficulty. Well, what does the beggar in this story tell us? This man served God and look at his condition. He's helpless. He's, eat, he's just afflicted with sores from head to toe. He can't even get to the gate of the rich man. They have to carry, them, have to carry him there daily. He's hungry, begging for just crumbs that fall off the rich man's table. This is a child of God, folks. And it doesn't mean God's forsaken this man. This man's got terrible difficulties, but he served God in spite of them, didn't he? He didn't let that injure his service to God, no matter how bad it got in this life. And God does not promise you and I a bed of roses. What did Paul have in his life? persecuted and hunted down everywhere he went. It's often been said of Paul that when he went into a city, he had a riot or he had a revival. Many times they ran him out of town. Remember, he was stoned, beaten with rods. He was in prison often. Paul suffered greatly. He said, I've, he said, I've lost everything I have and I count that but dung that I might win Christ. It means nothing to me. And when you look at some of the great servants of God, they were afflicted people. A lot of them were killed. How many prophets of God were murdered and put to death by those that didn't want their message? Most of the apostles, if history's right, were killed for their testimony. Maybe only John's the only one that died a natural death. They died horrible deaths. Christians were beheaded back in those days by the Roman Empire for not worshiping the emperors. There was all kinds of suffering. And this idea that if you'll serve God, why well, everything's going to be rosy. What did Jesus say about this? In, in, in Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, Christ said, Lay not up for yourselves 
treasures upon earth. Are we listening to that? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus, rather than promise us wealth in this life like these preachers promise today, He said, don't lay it up for yourselves. Lay up your treasure in heaven. Luke 12, verse 15. Jesus said, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, What shall I do? Because I have no place where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. I've told you many times, friends, that, that when we give things away as a Christian, we keep them, and when we keep things, we lose them. Every dollar that you keep for yourself, you lose. You say, well, no, I don't lose it. I've got it in the bank. You'll lose it. But every dollar that we might give to a widow or someone needing help or for the Lord's kingdom or whatever it be, we lay that treasure up in heaven. It's still there. Christianity has a paradox. What you give away, you keep, and what you keep, you lose. You give your life away to the Lord, you keep your life. You keep your life for yourself, you lose it. You lose your soul. That's the principle involved. It's that way in our giving. And contrary to what these preachers are saying to you on television, God, God does not promise you and I a rosy life all the time. In fact, sometimes the best thing for you and I is some suffering. Sometimes it's illness. Anything that brings us closer to God ultimately is best for us, whether it seems to be good or, or not. That's ultimately what's best. And sometimes we may need a little time in a hospital on a bed, even though I hate it. We all hate it. Sometimes that might be the very thing we need. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 8, the Bible says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. We never see a Wells Fargo truck in a funeral possession. We never carry it out of here. We're not taking a thing out of here. You say, well, I'm taking my clothes. You're not taking your clothes anywhere. You're taking them underground, and they're going to rot. We're not taking anything out of here. When you really think about it, we take nothing out, and we brought nothing in. So there are great lessons then from this tormented man. I'm sure we've just scratched the surface of many other things that could be said, but I hope this study has been helpful to us, remind us of some things, and and useful to you in your Christian life.
if there's someone here today that might be in need of our Lord, we're not in a hurry here today. And if you need prayer, if you need uh, forgiveness of sins, if you need to get right with God, we can help you. And if you need to be baptized for the remission of sins, we'd be glad to assist you in doing that. And so we offer the first and last verse as an invitation for you to come while we stand and sing. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.